Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. Uh, Plenty to discuss, as always, uh, Tony, and we're going to get right into it with further discussion on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. After that, Tony will be sharing with us some of his insights into defence and national security and what ought to be the priorities of the Labor government. And lastly, we will discuss what is becoming a much bigger issue for our nation is government debt in the context of rising inflation and rising interest rates. To begin with, Tony, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament, you and I have discussed this on a couple of occasions in the past. Uh, We need to keep discussing it because the issue is now coming to a head. You've written uh, a very important piece for The Australian uh, a couple of days ago on the Indigenous Voice. And I might just start by uh, providing context, which is that Anthony Albanese recently released his preferred wording for a potential constitutional uh, amendment. And I will just briefly read out his proposal, uh, which reads as follows. There shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Uh, That voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And the Parliament shall, subject to the Constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, function, powers and procedures of the voice. Very vague, no details. Uh, Tony, can you give us, uh, to begin with, your assessment of what's been put to us? Thanks, Dan, and it's great to be with you. I'm a supporter of Indigenous constitutional recognition, but it's got to be the right recognition, not the wrong recognition. And over the course of the last 15 years, since both sides of politics committed to some form of recognition, uh, the recognition debate has gone way, way, way beyond simply acknowledging Indigenous people in our nation's founding document and right into this field of uh, not just Indigenous governance, but Indigenous, but, but governance more generally. So, so the problem with the voice is that it's, it's, it's wrong in principle and it would work very badly in practice. Um, it's almost where do you start uh, when it comes to picking apart the proposal that the Prime Minister put forward at Gama. Uh, to start with, uh, the whole concept of a voice is foreign to uh, legal documents. Um, and if we start saying that Anyone who feels like they lack a voice to power should have something entrenched in our foundation document. Where do you end? Mm. I was listening to a news report this morning. Uh, young young kids in institutions, according to the news report, uh, feel unheard. They feel they lack a voice. And I found myself responding to the radio saying, well, maybe they need a voice to the parliament entrenched in our constitution. Mm. Anyway, so look, the voice is a, it's, it's, it's a nebulous, um, uh, ahistorical concept. Um, 
its scope is extremely ill-defined. Uh, advise the Parliament or make representations to the Parliament on, quote, matters relating, unquote, uh, to Indigenous people. Well, inevitably, this will end up in the courts. Uh, it will be massively litigated. And something as vague as this is almost inevitably going to be interpreted very expansively by the courts. And then there's this whole issue of the Parliament's ability to expand the functions of the voice uh, indefinitely and without limit. Uh, we could find that the voice is not simply giving advice, but it's running programs. We could find that the voice is not simply giving advice on Indigenous matters, but casting its uh, uh, eyes over the whole range of government policy. Um, then there's the idea of, uh, of, of, of uh, any group of people having to speak with one voice. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, the population of Australian men don't speak with one voice. The population of Australian women don't speak with one voice. Um, I dare say the population of Australian migrants or people with disabilities don't speak with one voice. I dare say the gay community, uh, for want of, a, of another example, doesn't speak with one voice. So why should we expect uh, that Indigenous people are, are univocal in a way that no one else is or no other entity is? And what does the need for a special Indigenous voice say about the 11 individual Indigenous voices that we've already got in the Parliament? Um, why shouldn't we listen to them respectfully uh, and uh, weigh up uh, what we do as a parliament, as a government, as a nation based on what those individual voices tell us. And I've got to say, uh, finally, in, in response to your opening question, Dan, if we ever were to have a voice, uh, wrong in principle because uh, it's elected by people of one race only and comprises people of one race only. But if we ever were to have a voice, I dare say it would be dominated much more by the Lydia Thorpes of this world than by the Jacinta Prizes of this world, because almost of its nature, any body designed by activists for activists will be dominated by activists. It'll be the inner city types who are well-versed in politicking, as opposed to the voiceless in remote Australia uh, who have been consistently and absolutely let down by government policy over many decades. Oh, well said. It's a very comprehensive treatment of the challenges that it represents. One thing that comes to mind as you're speaking about that is the. it's, it's also really a challenge to our representative democracy, which is you know, if you're an Indigenous person and an Anglo person and you both don't have a job – then you you can make representations to your member of parliament to try and do something about it. The point being that the whole idea of having a, a representative democracy is not to uh, make representations based on people's race or any other such matter, but based on their common values, aspirations, concerns and so forth. And that is the whole construction of our, our parliament, which has been overwhelmingly successful. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts on, on that, how it may undermine the concept of a, of a representative democracy? Well, again, it's it's dividing us by race. Well, we shouldn't be divided by race. I mean, we may from time to time be divided by politics. Mm. Uh, we may be from time to time divided by sport. We may be divided by many things. But 
I don't believe we should be divided by race. The other thing we've got to be careful of is exactly what do we expect our representative institutions to do. Now, if you or I haven't got a job, running along and complaining to the Member of Parliament is a pretty silly thing to do. Best thing to do is to wear out the shoe leather, uh, knocking on the doors of employers offering to help, maybe volunteering to do a bit of uh, work experience so that the employer can have a look at you for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Or uh, maybe go and get a trade or go back and finish year 12 or something like that. I, I, I mean, all of this feeds into the narrative that the world is against some people, that some people are victims. In this case, they're victims on account of their racial heritage and somehow uh, we only fix that by entrenching it. Well, I think that's completely the wrong way of going and obviously we all either heard or read or heard reported the extraordinary maiden speech of Jacinda Price in the Senate a week or so back. I really do think that anyone who wants a good insight into Indigenous affairs and the plight of Indigenous people in this country uh, and the way a wonderfully experienced and wise uh, Walpiri Celtic Australian woman has come to grips with them, uh, they, ought to, they ought to look at that and take counsel from it. Thank you, Tony. One other part of this I wanted to put to you to get your, your thoughts on is uh, the treaty discussion that we've had. So this has been relatively dormant in the debate thus far. But again, um, Anthony Albanese recently uh, basically, I think, belled the cat on this when he explicitly said that the first step to having a treaty is to having uh, the voice to parliament. And I'll just quote here uh, something which Anthony Albanese recently remarked. He said, quote, part of having a voice to parliament is to inform the processes as well about Maricata about truth-telling, about treaty. Um, in terms of getting the process right, if people think we can achieve a treaty this term of parliament, I'd say that's ambitious. What you can achieve in this parliament is a step forward, as in towards treaty, end quote. That is a fairly significant admission from the Prime Minister that a, a voice would be a, a stepping stone to a treaty. Um, are you concerned that that's what it could lead to? A very good question, Dan, and Absolutely, because this is all about uh, providing some response to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Mm -hmm. as it's called. And in many respects, it's quite a beautiful statement. Uh, In many respects, it's quite a magnanimous statement. But the specific actions that the Uluru Statement asks of the wider Australian community are, first of all, a voice, and then this uh, treaty and then this so-called truth-telling process. So uh, the slogan that I think emerged out of the Uluru Statement is uh, voice, treaty, truth. Now, I guess there's a whole lot of problems with a treaty. Uh, First of all, how does a nation make a treaty with a particular group of its own citizens? So if we start to talk about treaties, we're really, I suppose, giving um, way to this notion 
that there weren't 700 Indigenous clans mm. back in 1788. There were these so-called First Nations. Now, uh, I'm not in any way downplaying the significance of all of those clan groups and their importance to the people who lived within them, but trying to suggest that the 700 or so clan groups of uh, pre-1788 Australia were akin uh, to the nations of Europe at the time is just wrong. It's mm. just wrong. It's, it's, it's deeply ahistorical. So, so we're, we're giving into something that we shouldn't give into, a misreading of history. Then, of course, uh, what's this treaty going to end up being all about? Invariably, it's going to be it's going to end up being all about some form of reparations or compensation and people like the former WA Treasurer Ben Wyatt, people like the ABC's Indigenous editor have already started to talk about these things. And then, of course, there's this notion of truth-telling. Well, of course we should tell the truth. And in post-apartheid South Africa, there was a truth-telling commission where people could come forward and uh, articulate their life story and explain what had happened to them, uh, which was a personal injustice perpetrated on them, mm. real living people, by the old apartheid regime. Mm -hmm. Given that modern Australia has bent over backwards to be fair to Indigenous people for at least the last couple of generations, What's going to happen as part of this so-called truth-telling is we're going to rake over uh, the coals of our history. Now, yes, some bad things happened. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there were punitive expeditions. Uh, there were cases of significant in injustice. Absolutely right. But even back then, the vast majority of people, certainly the vast majority of officialdom, was trying to do the right thing. Often, yes, uh, in ways that we today consider misguided. Now, thanks, Tony, for that assessment. And I just wanted to ask you one more question on The Voice before we turn to other matters. Um, I thought the most astute observation you made in your uh, article for The Australian was your uh, assessment of the, the Third Chamber argument. As you know, those who are proponents of The Voice are very quick to suggests that this will not be a third chamber, it's purely advisory. And you make the point here, and I'll, I'll quote to you and get you just to elaborate on this before we talk about another matter. Quote, with Aboriginal people, uh, perhaps the torment of powerlessness, as the Prime Minister puts it, might have made things worse. But a voice to the Parliament would not actually be power, unless it turns out to be much more than just an advisory body, end quote. Uh, Tony, can you just elaborate on your, your assessment of the Third Chamber? Sure, and and Prime Minister Albanese himself really belled the cat here mm. where he said something like this, I'm quoting from memory, it would be a very brave government that ignored the voice. That's right, that was, words, on, that was on David Spears on the Insiders yeah, program last week. In, uh, in, yeah. in, in other words, the voice is not really an advisory body. Uh, it's effectively a veto-wielding body. Uh, it is a body which will, uh, to a considerable extent, dictate to the government of the day. Now, um, I just don't think this is right. 
uh, I don't think any entity should dictate to the government of the day. I certainly don't think a race-based body should dictate to the government of the day. And that's why I say this whole debate has gone so far off the rails, so far from the original conception of recognition of Indigenous people in the Constitution. And I should really come back to the, the, the place where my mind was at back in 2015. Uh, I thought um, that what we would end up doing, and I wanted the consultation process that began in the middle of 2015 not to be so exclusively amongst Indigenous people, because let's face it, the Constitution belongs to all of us, mm. uh, not just to any particular group. I wanted the consultation process to be a very broad-based process, and I imagined that out of that process would come support for something like uh, an addition to the preamble after the bit that says we're uh, creating a one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown, something like the words uh, a nation with... Uh, an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character. Now, um, the beauty of those words is that uh, they're unarguably true. We do have an Indigenous heritage. We did have a British foundation. We do have an immigrant character. Mm -hmm. They're undoubtedly true. I don't think even the most activist court could make anything of them in terms of... Um, invalidating legislation, and there's something for everyone there. Um, the Indigenous people are one of the three pillars on, what, on which our country rests. Um, um, the British Foundation, one of the three pillars on which our country rests, which obviously um, is important to conservatives such as myself, uh, but everyone who's come since uh, as well, uh, they're all recognised as being essential uh, to the building and the flourishing of modern Australia. No, thank you, Tony. I think that's a very, I think, fair and thorough treatment of the voice and we will no doubt be continuing our discussions. I suspect we'll be talking a lot about this, uh, Dan, because when you change the constitution, you change the country for keeps. You don't just change the place for a, for a week or a month or a year or a term of parliament. Uh, you change the country for keeps. It's very, very difficult to unwind constitutional change. So uh, if this is to go forward, it really needs to have the most thorough uh, scrutiny and the most intense mm. focus and concentration uh, before we make a decision. No, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to turn to our second topic, which is that of national defence and national security. Um, you've had a lot of experience in this area, both as Prime Minister and also in terms of your engagements post-parliamentary career. We know that Labor is undertaking a review into our defence, which all things equal, I think is a positive thing. Uh, but to begin with, Tony, could I get your assessment and advice on what you think the main priorities of this government should be as it relates to our national security? Dan, look, all governments of all persuasions at all times have essentially two jobs, um, prosperity and safety. What can we do to make the country more prosperous and what can we do to keep the country safe? Now, at different times, depending upon the circumstances, the stress might be more on one or more on the other. Um, in good times, 
obviously the focus is to make things better. Uh, but even in the best of times, we have to have a bit of an eye out for the various external challenges and perhaps some internal challenges uh, that might threaten our safety. Now, just at the moment, um, our economic and our strategic circumstances have rarely been more precarious. Uh, we've gone through this pandemic and uh, as um, you and I have said, Dan, uh, the great problem with the pandemic was not so much the virus, but the policy introduced to deal with the virus, which basically shut down our economies for two years. Uh, and we see the results all over the world now. Supply chain disruptions everywhere, um, all sorts of goods in very uh, short supply um, in parts of the world. Uh, there are food shortages uh, exacerbated by policy and conflict um, in our own country, uh, getting back to work seems to have been vastly more difficult than people thought. I think our work ethic uh, has been badly damaged. Uh, we keep talking about a skills shortage. No, 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 it's not a skills shortage, a labour shortage. Uh, people, particularly in the sorts of jobs that maybe aren't the most attractive intrinsically in the world, security jobs, labouring jobs, uh, clearing, cleaning those sorts of jobs, they're just not turning up. Mm. They're just not turning up because we've got used to this idea uh, that you don't have to go to work, uh, particularly if you've got a sniffle, you don't have to go to work. And uh, if you do have a sniffle, well, why not take seven days off because you never know, it might be the dread plague. So, so look, um, we've, we've got a lot of economic problems on our plate. Inflation uh, is, is, is high and it's serious. Um, but the last thing we want is a deep recession to cure inflation, yes. and that's the risk uh, right now. Um, then, of course, we've got the ongoing war in Ukraine and we've got the No Limits Partnership between Moscow and Beijing uh, with a few others uh, uh, lurking around as well as potential allies of convenience with both uh, Moscow and Beijing. Uh, which could really, really uh, damage us. Uh, uh, people talk about a climate emergency. Well, I tell you, um, the climate emergency is nothing compared to the strategic emergency, uh, which uh, uh, if it goes wrong or if it gets worse, um, could uh, damage us uh, and kill us uh, in extraordinary numbers. Uh, um, completely different order uh, of, of magnitude uh, to anything that might result from uh, a degree or two of temperature rise several decades hence. So what would be, if you're going to say, three major things that you believe the government should be focusing on, uh, whether that's to do with our security alliances, whether that's to do with our offensive capabilities, for example, whether that's to do with the acquisition of submarines, what would be the three top things you, you would recommend be considered as a part of this review? Okay, well... Jim Mullen has just written an excellent book, which I would thoroughly recommend to all of our listeners today, Dan, A Danger on Our Doorstep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's an outstanding book. Um, I'm hoping The Spectator might have a review uh, of the book by me uh, in the edition to come out at the end of the week. Uh, but I really do recommend that book to people. But essentially, what do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to... Uh, strengthen and deepen our alliances and 
the Morrison government, to its great credit, did that. Mm-hmm. And the Albanese government, to its credit, seems to be continuing the good work. Second, we've got to very rapidly increase our military firepower. Um, I've said before in many different contexts that the AUKUS decision was the most important decision any Australian government has made in decades. Unfortunately, it was one thing to make the decision. It was another thing to deliver on it. And the delivery looks like being at least a couple of decades away. Well, we haven't got a couple of decades. We need to pack a lot more strategic punch uh, in the next couple of years, not just in the next couple of decades. In Mm. fact, if we could get it tomorrow, we should get it tomorrow. So, there's the need for um, a crash um, armaments program, effectively, a, a crash rearmament uh, on the scale of what Britain did in the late 1930s. We really do need something uh, of that order. And there are lots of things that might be considered uh, uh, and don't need a review to be considered. They mm-hmm. need a decision. Uh, we could um, talk to the Japanese, uh, with whom we now have a reciprocal access agreement uh, about basing some of our ships and planes in Japan so that they could be closer to uh, any potential theatre of operations. Uh, we are in the process of building frigate-sized offshore patrol vessels, uh, but as currently envisaged, they have almost no armament. Uh, we could put some serious armament on these serious ships. Um, But the other thing we need to do, Dan, is we need to increase our national resilience. Uh, Mm. I don't think making our country more resilient right now is advanced uh, by insisting that while our coal can be exported to China for them to use, um, we can strengthen our competitor. We can't use it here. Um, It's scandalous that we've got such limited stores of armaments. Uh, it's scandalous that we have such limited supplies of, uh, of liquid fuels uh, onshore here in this country. Uh, the former government, to its credit, uh, did buy uh, oil reserves, but they're in the United States. And as Jim Molan tells us uh, in no uncertain terms in his book, uh, in the event of a conflict, we would not be able to get those stores from the United States to Australia unless we had our own merchant marine, which we virtually don't have anymore. So, so they're not exactly so, strategic. So, so we're doing very well on the alliance building. Uh, we're doing um, not well, but we're at least thinking about the armament building. The one thing we're not thinking about at all in fact, if anything, we're going backwards, is the national resiliency resiliency piece, uh, and that's what we really need to be focusing on too. It was a critical point because uh, I did a, a conversation with Jim Molan probably three or four months ago now, and the key point that he made is worse the effect of um, defence is a whole-of-economy, whole-of-society issue that you can't just quarantine defence and think, oh, we've got to buy this, this and this. We've got to think about our entire nation. And that's what you're getting at with resilience, and that ties into your point about economic prosperity. And this will be a nice segue into our final topic for today, which is one component of our prosperity, which is debt. And we know that debt has been a big problem for a number of years. Um, I just wanted to set this up 
Tony, just by letting our listeners know that we released a, a fairly major report last week on the growth to government debt, which received coverage in the Australian Financial Review. And what we assessed was uh, if the RBA cash rate was to reach 7% by the year 2030, which is not an unreasonable scenario given current trajectories, our annual debt interest payment, so this is not the total debt, this is just the annual servicing cost of that debt, would reach $89 billion, which is more than quadruple what it currently is at $20 billion. Now, just to put that in context, $89 billion is more than double we spend on defence, more than double we spend on education, three times what we spend on the NDIS. It's a serious amount of money every single year, and it would become the third highest expenditure item behind health, welfare, and social services. So rising debt is a huge economic issue. Tony, in hindsight, the 2014 Abbott budget was the last serious attempt that was made to get some structural control over the budget with spending discipline and getting rid of waste. Given all of your experience in that area and given what your government had made a very good start on, the politically difficult task of budget repair, can you give us your your insights into what are the challenges in this very important space? Well, Dan, first of all, you're right. Uh, It's all very well um, being blasé about debt when interest rates are close to zero, but if interest rates go back to standard historical levels, five to six percent for argument's sake, well, that uh, trillion dollars worth of debt, the interest repayments suddenly go up from about 15 to 20 billion a year to uh, 60 billion plus. So uh, we're talking about a massive ongoing burden on the budget. What do we need to do? Well, first of all, we need to try to make our economy more productive, and that means getting taxes down as low as we responsibly can and reducing regulation rather than constantly adding to it. There's always a good argument for safety, uh, cut speed limits to 30 kilometres per hour, um, put bike lanes everywhere, but what does it do to the efficiency of transport around the city of Melbourne or the city of Sydney, for instance? So. We've got to try to reduce the burden of regulation rather than keep increasing the burden of regulation. And then when it comes to government spending, I I, I think there needs to be a restoration at the very least of the no new spending rule. Now, uh, under the Abbott government and uh, before that under the Howard government, if if a portfolio minister wanted to spend money new money uh, in his or her area, uh, he or she had to offer savings in his or her area. So you constantly had to ask yourself is what 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 extra good is this new spending going to do? Yep. And if we really do think that this new spending is is so good that it must happen, what's the stuff that we can dispense with in order to make it happen? Now, The New Zealand government of John Key reduced the size of government from about 35% of GDP to under 30% of GDP over the course of six or seven years without any major cuts as such, but simply by refusing new spending. So it, it needn't be a question of taking anything much away, but it's certainly a question of stopping playing Santa Claus. And that's what happened far too often um, 
in in the last few years. No, you, you're completely right. And look, the a lot of this debt was run up by the the coalition government during the pandemic, and they'll look. They might say, well, you know, we had the pandemic, and we didn't choose to have that. My point is, but you did choose to how to respond to it, and. Yes, it was probably inevitable you'd have a wage subsidy program, but to administer in such a, Look, a, a lax fashion, when, I think, when, was unforgivable. If government orders people not to work, government has to keep putting money in their pockets. But but government should only order people not to work under the most extraordinary and extreme of circumstances. And at the very most, uh, we had them uh, for a couple of months at the start of the pandemic when we didn't know what we were facing. But once it became obvious what we were facing, and certainly by April, May of 2020, it was obvious what we were facing, there should not have been, uh, there should not have been uh, stay-at-home orders, um, don't work orders. We just shouldn't have had them. And that would have drastically reduced the scale of spending required. And just lastly, Tony, I don't want to necessarily get you to cut across any of the day-to-day politics, but I am interested in your thoughts on how Jim Chalmers is going so far as Treasurer. I raise that simply because I think he's been making some good sounds on fiscal discipline. Um, he's, I think, shown a willingness perhaps to take unpopular decisions uh, with his ruling out of extending the fuel excise cut, which I think from a fiscal discipline perspective is is promising. Of course, he has a history in the in Labor as Wayne Swan's chief of staff and so forth, so you might raise questions about that. But uh, I'm hopeful that perhaps he might want to be uh, more on the side of uh, budget repair, economic management, and trying to restore some of that economic credibility to, to Labor that they've lost for, for many, many years. Uh, do you have any thoughts or reflections on that? D- Dan, you're right. I'm trying not to get too much down into the detail of uh, commentary on day-to-day government policy. Um I agree that he's certainly said some sensible things and good on him. And look, uh, while, as we've discussed earlier, I I vigorously disagree with the government's current position on the so-called voice, um, as patriots, we've got to want the government of the day to succeed, uh, whether we voted for it or not. And so uh, let's hope a Treasurer Chalmers turns out to be um, every bit the fine Labor Treasurer, like Keating in his early days. Uh, let's hope the spirit of Peter Walsh mm. um, has uh, taken root in Jim Chalmers, uh, but it's very early days. Let's see how it goes. Indeed. On that note, Tony, I think we'll wrap it up there. So thanks again for what's been, I think, a pretty comprehensive coverage of the voice, defence and debt. So... Tony, always appreciate you taking the time and your insights and looking forward to chatting again over the next few days. Thanks, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.